Hello and welcome to the Spiraling Higher podcast hosted by me, Sam, Mindset and Manifestation Coach. And me, Gina, your Biz and Mindset Coach. We're here to support you on your spiritual journey by bringing you intimate and raw conversations about healing, manifestation, consciousness, and spirituality. We hope this podcast makes you feel less alone as you become aware of your patterns and limiting beliefs to uplevel your life, manifest like a boss, and together, spiral higher. Spiralers, we are so excited to dive into what is going to be a truly enlightening conversation with grief specialist Ashley Nelson. Grief is a topic that so many of us deal with but do not know how to navigate. Maybe you are helping someone right now move through grief, or maybe you are someone who is moving through that or bereavement yourself. And so we are so excited to dive into all the things grief, what the stages are, or whether there even are stages, what we can do to support, and how to move through this very heavy collective energy. So Ashley, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. And also talking about grief because we don't have a enough opportunities and discussions about it. So it means a lot to not only have me, but have this important conversation. Yes, absolutely. I think that that is exactly our intention behind this podcast is to have those hard, tough, conscious conversations that allow us to really expand our consciousness and help us be more happy, healthy humans, right? I think that our intention for every episode is that people walk away with a little bit more lightness and a bit of a tool or awareness that's going to help them move forward. And if someone right now is listening and dealing with grief, we hope that this conversation is going to give them the power to move forward in a supportive way. So I think our first question, Ashley, I would love for you to just share your story. You have a phenomenal and also very painful story. And I would just love for you to share kind of what your journey has been with grief and people that you've lost along the way and how you really came into the work that you're doing now as a grief specialist. Right. So I like to begin right where, right before the loss, I was a very encouraging person, very outgoing. I say that I'm a bit of an ambivert. I'm pretty introverted, but I'm Mm -hmm. extroverted at times too. Very happy-go-lucky, look on the bright side type of person. Because when we talk about grief and loss, it's like, what is it that we lost? We lost the person, yes, but we lost pieces and aspects of ourselves too. And so Mm. I am actually a two-time widow. Yes, two time in that I have lost two soulmates and both of them had died, unfortunately, unexpectedly when I was, gosh, probably seven to eight years ago now. My partner, he died. It was unwarranted. We had no clue that it was going to happen. It was completely mind boggling. And being so young, you know, oftentimes when we say, well, what is a young widow? And young constitutes as sometimes people say before retirement or right after retirement. So many people constitute being young, widowed, under 40. And so mm-hmm. when you're that young, you expect life to be good and to be happy and that you're going to have the family that you wish and you desire. You're going to have the travels and such. Life is supposed to be good. And when this unfortunate event happens, it causes a break in what life can really be and the reality and that no one's really protected. Mm-hmm. So not only did I lose aspects of who I was, of that happy-go-lucky person, and being on the bright side, and of course my soulmate, there was aspects of the way that I saw the world change too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
like your expectations for the world and how you had imagined your life would go. It's actually interesting that you bring that up because I feel that 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 really is cognitive dissonance. And we deal with this a lot with our clients. It's not necessarily the event that's happening. It's now how that event restructures our worldview and how we perceive ourselves in relation to it. And so I would love for you to dive a little bit deeper about how that actually shaped out for you. So obviously you went through something really hard and Please be mindful as you share this because I know it can be a heavy topic. But you know, after that happened, you, how did you begin to reorient yourself initially? Because I can't, I can't even imagine how much my worldview would change through that. Because you're right, we do have the expectation that we're going to live to be some eighty plus years old, and especially when we get married um, or are are in a long term relationship, we say we're going to grow old together. So these events really create a rupture in our relationship to life. And so I'm kind of curious to know what actually happened right after. And maybe this could normalize the experience for other people who are going through it. Right after I was in shock and denial. I couldn't believe that I was even going through the experiences that what? And oftentimes I say that all losses to some extent are sudden. Because even if your person has a diagnosis or you're told that they have six months to live or a year or any day, we don't know that on Tuesday at this day at 4.03 p.m., they're going to take their last breath. So to some extent, all losses are sudden because we don't have that actual date and time. Mm. But in the event that it is sudden, there was no diagnosis. There wasn't any medical ailments that we're aware of. And it happened so sporadically. It's just the shock of just trying to figure out where you are and what the heck happened. Is this truly real? I remember thinking, no, this is not possible. I remember the day that I found out I went to work or at least I start driving to work and halfway there I broke down and I realized I couldn't go to work and I parked on the side of the road and I sat down for in the car for about an hour until I could gain some type of safe composure to drive all the way back home. And in that Mm. process, it really hit me. Wow, he's gone. And the hard part about loss, especially when you have a significant one, is that the person that you want to go to most is the person that has died. And so what do I do when I can't go to that person to talk about how I'm suffering and how I miss them because they're no longer here? So there wasn't any big orientation. It was just the orienting was figuring out where I am on the map of life right now. Oh my gosh, I love that you bring that up because you know, I think that grief is definitely cyclical and like and it's like waves, right? And yeah. it's you're grieving like you said, like almost like the life that you thought you were going to have. And you're grieving all of these moments that this person is no longer there with you in. Um, you know, our listeners most of them will know that I lost my mother-in-law last year. And in her case, she did have an illness. She had multiple sclerosis. Um, but we actually did know exactly when she was going to die um, because she opted to do MAID, which is medical assistance in in dying. Um, and that was a choice she had to make for herself. And, um, you know, it went from being like a thought of maybe she was going to do this. Then it was like a 90-day timeline of mandatory reflection period that you have to take. But in her case, because it was so severe, um, she got approved to do an expedited process. So it went from three months to three days. And so that whole process for us was that alone was a shock because it's an initial shock at first that she's going to make this choice and then to have it happen so quick. And so we did know what time it was going to happen, but it didn't make it any easier. It almost created a totally different element to it because we were sitting in the room with her knowing that she was going to go in a few hours trying to have these normal conversations, but 
knowing that she didn't really want to have any heavy conversations either. So anyways, even in knowing when somebody might be passing after, like you said, you, we drove away being like, she's, she's gone. And like you said, it was like all of these moments that I would go to text her a picture of my daughter and be like, wait, she's not, she's not there. And so I think with grief, that's something that you do expect on some level that that'll be hard, but I think you never know when that's going to hit you. So I would love for you to kind of share, yeah, more about your journey and how the stages of grief and those cycles kind of showed up in your life and how you yourself went through them and what you also coach your clients to do. Yeah. And that's a great point that you mentioned, Gina, because what we call that, what that you're describing is actually anticipatory grief. It's when I know mm-hmm. that I am literally anticipating a loss that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And oftentimes when we think about grief, we associate it so much with death, but grief comes also with non-death losses. And oftentimes it's those secondary losses, the non-death losses that are attached to that person or sometimes to that thing that make it extra hard. So to answer, I'm going to answer your question, but to kind of piggyback on that is the anticipatory loss of, wow, she's losing her health that she's not going to be here, that she's not going to be here for her children. Or sometimes it's the anticipatory loss of somebody died and they were the main breadwinner. And now we're going to lose the house or we are losing the house. So I know that I'm going to have to move. All those elements are part of the loss process. So what I like to say is that there aren't the five stages of grief. What we often don't know, Keebler Ross did a wonderful job on doing the five stages of grief, but that research was so fundamental to loss because nobody was really talking about it at that time that Mm -hmm. she actually did research on those who were actively dying which means that they knew that they were dying and they had been diagnosed with a terminal illness she didn't do the study on people who were surviving the person who had died so many times Mm -hmm. people say i don't Mm -hmm. find myself within the five stages of grief they talk about anger and bargaining acceptance i see aspects of it but it doesn't follow that process that's because, it, again, it was done on people who were actively dying, not the one who were surviving them after they unfortunately had left their lives. Wow. Okay. So just to clarify for the listeners, I want to make sure we have this clear going forward. So the five stages of grief that most people are very familiar with, like grief, bargaining, um, or like anger, right? And then finally acceptance. You said that these were based on people who were actively dying, had been diagnosed. So these were the person who was leaving Earth, you could say, that was their stage. Stages, but there was no such research on the people who were surviving and dealing with the grief of the loss. Absolutely correct. Okay. I would love for you to go deeper because I just wanted to clarify that for everyone because I actually did not know that. I had no idea that the five stages of grief were based on literally people grieving themselves or I guess their own diagnosis mm-hmm. in life. Um, and I imagine those are obviously very different for the person who's left behind, which makes so much sense from like a general standpoint, mm-hmm. but we've never gone into that. And so I would love for you to be the person who um, sheds light on that for us. Thank you. Yeah, many people don't know it, even those who are going through grief themselves. So again, they're like, this doesn't fit me or I'm going to doctors and therapists or friends and family. They're saying, I think you're going through this stage. And you're saying, no, it doesn't feel like that at all. That's because the research wasn't done on you or people like you. Mm, wow. And so you can just take a breath knowing, okay, congratulations, you're normal. Instead, what I like to say <laughs> is that we have seasons of loss. And, and seasons of losses aren't exact timelines, but for people's curiosity sake, I put a little bit of timelines on it. If you fall outside of these, know that you're still normal. Again, these are just general things. I've been in death care for 10 years now. 
And this is what I have seen. So from day one that you find out the person has died and day one is literally the moment that you find out. For some people, if they have missing persons or the family's exchange or maybe you're on vacation, however it happened, the day that they died and the day that you find out can be different. So your day one is from the moment you find out that they've died, however you encounter that information, all the way until month three. What we say is that's generally acute grief. That's when you're doing a lot of the funeral arrangements and the planning and notifying Mm -hmm. the closest of family and friends. If there's anything, unfortunately, and sometimes fortunately, depending upon how you view it, that's going to be on the news and media, that's when the bulk of it is going to be shown. It's really the early part of the logistics and the paperwork that we say of when a person has died. After that, from month three up until year two, year three, again, being very generous with the with the time. So if you go beyond that, it's okay. But we say from month three until roughly year three, we call that early grief. Early grief is the first holidays without them, the first anniversaries, the birthdays, the everyday living, going back to work and figuring out what that is, learning how to reparent as a solo parent, not a single parent. And if you end up being a widow or widower, seeing what all that means, unfortunately, learning that people don't understand grief and that they may say some things are, are unsupportive, even if they mean well. And then year two is, wow, I have to do this again. Gosh. I survived year one. Now I'm going through the second birthday without them. The fog is lifting. And year three, we include two. Year three is a little bit different because you've had two years. And when people say, hey, look on the bright side, sometimes you're a little less surprised because you've heard it so much. So usually from, again, month three to year three, we say that that is early grief. And year three to four or five, sometimes that's the messy middle not necessarily living again and ready to live again, but I'm not in that early stage. When I see people crying at the funeral, I'm kind of like, kind of glad that's not me. And then we go into Mm. what we call mature grief, where I'm fully able generally to support other people. I'm living again. I've adjusted to the grief. I've integrated into my life and what ways that feel supportive to me. Wow. I mean, I'm basically coming on to the one year anniversary of her passing and, um, yeah, you just kind of laying that out. It It's exactly that. Like we experienced our first Christmas without her and she used to host all of these holiday dinners um, all the time. And so for that first Christmas to happen so soon after she passed, because that was November 8th, um, that was definitely quite painful. And now we're kind of gearing up to that time. And so we actually just scattered her ashes um, last weekend. How beautiful. And it was, it was really beautiful. I'm probably going to start crying, but... um. I think it was what's really been interesting for my journey that I want to share is that when she made that decision and we were in that room with her, what I genuinely felt was just an overwhelming sense of peace and love because I could see this woman who was honestly the strongest person I've ever known in my life, never complained about her illness. And then to take this decision and to end her suffering and to take that courage and take her life into her own hands and make that own choice for herself was really beautiful. And I think being in that room with her and seeing all the messages that were coming in for her, it was just such a visceral reminder of all that matters is the love that was shared. And that's really what survives her and keeps her going in her, you know, in her memory. And I was kind of on that wave for the first few months of deep grief, deep sadness, but also the equivalent size or feeling of joy and love. And 
as the time went on, especially as we geared towards doing her ashes, I just got hit with like a whole other wave. And there was no joy. There was no sense of love. It was just pain. And a lot of pain and suffering on her behalf of all the things that she's missed in the past year. And yeah, so just hearing you talk about those stages in that way, because I definitely did learn early on that grief doesn't happen in those grief stages that a lot of people talk about. But just even hearing you explain that I know has helped me already. So I hope that that helps other people too. But I would love for you to kind of just explain, you know, what is happening in these waves? I mean, I think we all kind of know, but just whatever your explanation is of that and how to cope. Because the word that I used with Sam when I was explaining to her how I felt that day, it just feels so unbearably heavy. Like you can't carry it. It just feels so painful. And I'm not someone that tends to disassociate or not feel. I really love feeling emotions, but this was something that I just wanted to turn off from. So I would just love for you to share your expertise and wisdom on that. And thank you for sharing that because just being vulnerable and opening up to essentially the world is not easy, especially when you're in that heavy, vulnerable, still very much processing space. So I applaud you for even being able to recognize Mm -hmm. that and being in that space. When it comes to grief, we do have those moments where we may feel some ease or some peace that you describe sometimes joy, and that can also lead to guilt. We might touch upon that later. I live by the ocean. And so one of the things that I love to do is go to the beach. And in grief, we often say that grief comes in waves. But the reality is so does peace. So does ease. So does happiness. So does the remembrance of them. So does honoring of them. So just as the grief comes in waves, and sometimes it has this sinking underneath the water and sometimes we're head above the water and knee deep. Sometimes that sense of peace that we have is on the next wave and ah, we can relax. And then sometimes the wave after that comes back to grief. So if you feel like your emotions are all over the place, especially if you're in that acute and early phase, completely normal. Again, congratulations on being human. What I like to say is that Coping is really hard in the beginning and as hard as you go along. I like to say that everybody is giving a backpack. So imagine that you have a backpack and you're just putting it on. For some of us, it's purses, but I say a backpack and you never take it off. It's almost like you're born with it and that's it. You have it. Well, for grief, we still have that backpack. But the thing is that when we're going through the grief guilt and the grief shame, and the wondering, the would have, should have, could have, what didn't I do? What did I do? Having all the unanswered questions, the lack of acceptance, going in between acceptance, the anxiety. Oh my gosh, all you have to do is be in grief for five minutes and you will encounter somebody with anxiety. That's the thing that is always consistent in my 10 years here. And the, all of those are like bricks in the backpack. And so when you're carrying bricks in the backpack, all the time, eventually you, you just want to take it off. You're like, I need a break. I need to sit down. I can't function. When we are learning how to cope with it, or we learn how to heal, and I use the word healing different. Healing is not like I have a Band-Aid and over a paper cut, and then it heals in a few days. No, healing for us looks like learning how to take the bricks out of the backpack. Where We have to carry the backpack because that's your grief, but it doesn't mean that you have to carry it and fill it with bricks. 
So coping Mm. for us is learning how do I deal with the guilt and the resentment, the unforgiveness of them or the self-forgiveness of me? How do I lessen my anxiety or whatever else that I've been doing to cope with the loss or not necessarily cope with the loss at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely hear a lot of people going through, I guess, the early stages of grief. There is a lot of anger, which seems to be shared between the ones who are diagnosed and the ones who are left behind, almost as if, how could you do this to me? Or how could this happen to me? And from a thought work perspective, which is my work, it sounds like a lot of resistance. And um, I'm wondering how do we, if if grief really is non-acceptance, and I'm kind of curious to know your perspective on that, right? Because even when we say things like, oh, how am I going to move on? And like, how could they do this to me? And what could I have done? It just, the language sounds a lot like I'm unwilling to accept what's already happened. And I'm in my mind time traveling into the past or to the future. Like, how could I have changed this? And um, if getting to the stage of acceptance is where we generally feel less waves of grief and more peace, what is the way to get us there? Um, not that it's an expectation that you need to get there quickly, but what have you found to be the most supportive in getting people into the acceptance phase? Because I think anyone who's going through a huge loss, right? That is, I suppose, the goal is to get to a place where they can accept what's happened, move forward. And I feel that most people, once they have quote unquote moved on, although you may never actually technically move on, But what they end up kind of resolving within themselves is that the person who was gone would want them to move on, would want them to be happy. And so how do we get people to move into that stage um, with a bit more confidence and and energy so that they can feel, yeah, that ability to move forward with their lives? That's a great question. You mentioned two things. One is anger. And I know you mentioned acceptance, but the bigger piece that you may or may not have realized that you mentioned is resistance. So I want to touch upon two pieces. Mm-hmm. One, what we know is that behind anger is pain. Yes. Sometimes pain presents itself as sadness. Sometimes pain presents itself as anger because the anger feels very protective. Yeah. It, it allows us to emote. And when you are angry and you lash out or you're doing workouts or you're punching a bag or you're screaming, whatever, however it is that you're expressing that anger, even if it's towards yourself, it feels like some sort of release. So oftentimes when we say, what is behind the pain? It's okay to be angry. Anger is not a bad emotion, just like we are happy and sad or fearful. It serves a purpose. We just want to know what is the anger protecting? The second thing that you mentioned is resistance. And I had an amazing psychologist teach me this when I was actually studying psychology. And she said, people aren't resistant. They don't feel safe. Ah, mm. People aren't resistant. They don't feel safe. When we don't feel safe to do something, we're naturally going to be a little more defensive or a little more resistant to do it. Because we mm. don't know what's on the other side and there's some fear factor. We're lacking security. So oftentimes for many people in grief, I see when they are not in the state of wanting or be willing to come to acceptance. And that takes time. I hate to say it takes time, but if your person died yesterday or even sometimes six months ago, I don't expect you to be like, okay, I accept all the things because there are so many (laughs) secondary losses that come with it. What often happens in grief is that acceptance doesn't feel safe. If I accept that they are gone, does that mean I will forget them? 
Does it mean that I won't remember mm. the sound of their voice or what it was like to laugh with them? Does it mean that I have moved on? But my pain feels like such a, a way of connecting to them that if I accept the mm. loss, how will I connect to them? So oftentimes when people are unwilling or as we often say in the world, resistant to the acceptance is because they haven't yet learned that there's other ways to connect with the, the, their loved one outside and beyond the pain. Hmm. I would love you to explain um, one, like what are the ways that you can connect with the person? Because I definitely experienced that in my own personal life as well of not wanting to let her go. Like everybody says, I'm like, let her go. And, you know, she would want you to be happy. And it's like, knowing that doesn't change how, how I feel. Right. And it is hard to know um, how to celebrate the person, how to make them be included. And sometimes, I mean, I, I am a very spiritual person. So I do believe that she's, she's with us, you know, that we can communicate with her, that she's listening. But then there are definitely those days where I'm like, are you even there? Like, am I just making this shit up? You know, like, is this just, am I just, you know, you just start to question all of that. So I would love for you to share some of those tools or strategies or uh, methods that um, you would recommend somebody to, yeah, kind of connect with that person even after they're gone from earth. Yeah. And that, and that's part of the waves, right? So for continuing bonds, I think about the year that my late soulmate died, my first one and his brother and now sister-in-law got married. And naturally, because he died early in the year, he couldn't be present. So one of the ways that we incorporated his life and actually others' lives is that we had a memorial table. And it wasn't mm. like the Grim Reaper at a wedding, but we <laughs> had photos and little mementos that kind of signified that they were still present somehow. Also, when they had the son and mother dance, his brother decided to dance to the song what um a wonderful world because that was the song that jason really loved that was my wedding song that's so synchronistic <laughs> yes sorry continue song. such a good song also i think that sometimes people for example the name a drink after their person whether it's a wedding or a party or a celebration sometimes if the person was cremated and they have ashes they'll lay ashes in different places that they travel or different places that the person loved i've seen where They'll buy flowers for other people, like, hey, maybe my mom died, so I'm going to buy flowers for someone else's mom. I find ways to give back. There's so many different creative ways of, that we can continue that bond with that person. We can journal about them. Now, naturally, doing all of that doesn't bring them back. So it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that you won't have moments of grief. It won't mean that sometimes... It just won't suffice. When you want your person, you want your person. And there is nothing that you can do to completely fill the gap that they left in your life. But it is a way to support yourself in healthy ways and not go to alternatives of isolating or substances mm -hmm. or things that really aren't supportive to your mental, emotional, and body. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're asking them to really like alchemize the pain and turn it into something beautiful, which won't work every single time, right? But you know, part of, I think, what Gina and I believe about living a spiritual life is being able to hold the duality or to live between the contrasts. And so that was such a beautiful story about honoring someone's loss during a joyful moment. But I would love to take this conversation into a direction that addresses people who feel happiness guilt, right? Joy guilt, because 
maybe they are getting married and they feel like they shouldn't be this happy today because someone that they love and care about isn't here. Mm-hmm. I'm also curious because you're a double widow. You entered a beautiful relationship after your first loss. Was there happiness and joy guilt around that? Um, I'm curious since we've now chatted a little bit about how to move through pain and honor something like that at the same time as joy. What about those who are resistant to actually expressing joy after the loss? Absolutely. And being completely transparent after a person dies, if you don't feel joyful, that's really, really normal. Mm -hmm. Grief means that we have lost something. And very few times are we actually excited about something that we have lost. Even if you didn't have Mm -hmm. a good relationship with that person, sometimes the person who dies, you know, we love to paint people beautiful. But Mm -hmm. sometimes the parent that died or the brother that died or the cousin, or sometimes I've even seen in relationships, there was a few instances where a husband or or wife would die and they say, we were actually going through a divorce and I'm really sad that they died, but I never wanted to be a widow or widower. I wanted to be an ex-wife or husband. So Mm. it all depends. So, Sometimes if you're not feeling all that joyful or if you are feeling relieved, there's no right or wrong. It's only what feels right for you. So if you're feeling that sense of guilt because, hey, why am I happy and they died? It's likely that you're trying to connect through the pain, even if you don't really Mm. realize that. The pain can feel so comforting after a loss, especially a loss that we are deeply connected to, that when we are feeling good and we are feeling uplifted, it's how do I connect to them in the joy? So oftentimes Mm -hmm. that's where the resistance or the unsafeness, as I say, feel because the joy itself feels like a loss. It's the loss of feeling the pain that's connecting you to them. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. That makes so much much sense. It's like we only know how to remember and honor the loss through a painful feeling. And so we would almost prefer to unconsciously keep recycling that emotion because it makes us feel connected to the person. And um, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier before we started recording, but it seems like the first loss is almost sort of not on your terms, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about the survivors. But then there needs to be almost like a second negotiation, you could say, where you have to let go of the painful connection without losing the connection, Mm -hmm. right? How can we begin to help people reestablish a relationship to the lost loved one that isn't through the lens of pain, right? Where every time we think of them, we're not hit with this unbearable heaviness, but who knows, maybe we connect with the memory of the person and we actually feel lightness and celebration in loving memory of them. Um, Obviously, that sounds easier said than done, but it seems like that's going to be the most sustainable way for someone to continue to stay connected to someone that they've lost without it completely collapsing collapsing them into those like early and later stages of grief. And I'm assuming maybe you've gone through that yourself. You've obviously been able to turn your life's work into grief specialists and um, help people move through that. So I'm curious, how can we help people begin to move through the painful connection that they've kept alive for who knows how long and uh, keep the loving memory, but not the pain? Great question. What happens is that Whenever we go through hardship or we go through trauma or definitely going through loss, there's pain and there's suffering. Now, initially, mm. neither of them are a choice. As we progress, one of them becomes a choice. 
The pain is not the choice. The suffering is. If I'm walking down the street and God forbid, I don't know, I trip over something and I fall and I hit my face and now my face is bleeding. I'm in pain. I didn't choose that. If I'm in suffering because that happened, that's not my choice. If Sam or Gina, you come and say, hey, I have medications and I can bind up and wound up or, you know, let your f- fix your face in the sense that, okay, not only does it stop the bleeding, but we kind of taking care of the suffering of it. And I say, no, now I'm choosing to suffer. So that's when it becomes mm. a choice. So oftentimes what happens is the, the suffering within the pain is what we're connecting to. The suffering is the bricks. And that's what the part that we're trying to alleviate and even take out the backpack and replace with those continuing bonds, like the music and the spreading of the ashes and the stories and all the things that feel more supportive to us. Mm-hmm. So what I say is that pain is a blinder. And if you're listening to this, you can't see the demonstration that I'm doing. So I'm going to kind of talk it out to you. I say that you have your hands and whether you're listening or whatever, as long as you're not driving, if it's safe, you take both hands and you put it over your eyes. And when you put both of your hands over your eyes, you can't see anything around you all that well. What happens is even if you spread your fingers apart, you get a little bit more sight, but everything that you see is literally through the lens of your hands. That's what Mm. suffering is. That's what trauma is. We're looking at life through this lens. Now, when we learn how to cope and we learn how to alleviate that, it's like we're putting our hands in front of us. It's still in sight. We keep all the memories, we keep all the lessons, we keep all the meaning and the experiences. But now if you look around you, your view has become so much different. Now you have full view. So when we are learning how to cope with that, when we are learning with the joy part, it's not that we're taking everything away. The pain is still there. We're not just using it to look at our everyday lives and our relationships and even the way that we see ourselves. Oh my gosh, that was incredibly helpful for me. Um, yeah, because I think sometimes, especially if someone has you know passed away due to an illness, and you witness this person suffering. You know, my husband was her caretaker for like almost three decades, two and a half decades, and you know, we witnessed so much of her suffering and her life really, she really didn't have a great quality of life. She couldn't like watch TV. She couldn't really leave her room that much. She couldn't write. Um, she couldn't really talk on the phone too much. And so a lot of those things over time, we were grieving as she was losing these capabilities and, you know, these, you know, even just her body functions. And so, um, yeah, I think when she passed and especially as we're coming up to a year, I couldn't help but be really attached to the suffering because it definitely was me almost suffering on her behalf of her life that she did have and you know her suffering of having to make that choice and leave her grandchild and her kids and the suffering that she endured when she had to make that decision and you know I actually had a really powerful session with my therapist who really illuminated this for me and she kind of shared that you know that my mother-in-law made such a brave choice to end her suffering not for me to then assume it and continue it. And that hit me so hard because at first she was like, you know, she wouldn't want you to suffer. And that wasn't really enough for me to stop. I was like, I know she doesn't want me to, but I can't help it. I just keep feeling this weight of her suffering. But when she said that, it was enough to allow me to like let go, like you said, and put my hands down to be able to see without that filter. Um, Because also I want to honor the other perspective, what, what she did, which was strength and courage. 
you know, not just suffering. And so I really love the way that you illustrated that because I think there is a fear of, like you said, of ending the suffering because, well, what if, what if I'm not sad anymore? And even my daughter, she's eight and she started to say things like, I kind of forget what grandma sounds like. And it's like, what? I don't want her to forget that. And, you know, um, another thing that my therapist shared was that these everything that our loved ones did with us, it changes us on a cellular level. You know, these memories, these experiences, even with my daughter being so young, even the memories she doesn't remember, they still changed her core, her being. And that never dies. That never goes away. And that's still always going to be in live in us, whether or not we remember it. And so that was really helpful and supportive. And you just kind of rounding that out with that visual of the hands really was really helpful. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And so what you described is very normal, Mm -hmm. very normal. We become very attached to the suffering because right now the suffering is the bridge to the pain. And until we learn how to take a different bridge, we'll continue going on that same path because that is the connection. Mm. Mm. I'm not sure if you'll be able to talk a little bit more about this, but I'm actually really curious about this just in general. So I've noticed that different cultures obviously treat death very differently. Mm -hmm. And um, I think beliefs about death can definitely determine how much or how little grief we feel. And I would say in a lot of Asian cultures, there is a sense and it's changing now, right? But I want to say more historically and traditionally, there's a sense that death is not final. And in some cultures, I can't list any right now, but I know that death is a really big celebration, which I'm also noticing is sort of being influenced in the West. People are doing more celebration of life rather than these very somber gatherings. It's almost like, let's celebrate all the goodness, right? But that was actually a norm for many cultures for a very long time because they thought that death was, you know, a release. Like you could say in India, it's like, well, they're released from all their karmic suffering and bondage to, you know, earthly suffering and they're free. There's like the sense of freedom and liberation. And so I'm curious if you've noticed that between cultures as a grief specialist, like are there certain groups that are really dealing with the finality of death, whereas other people might feel like, oh, this isn't the end, right? There's like a transition. There's another side. I'm kind of curious how that contributes to grief in your experience. Well, when we ask what is culture, culture is literally defined as a way of life among the people who Mm -hmm. generally belong to one another. And so when we look at that, yeah, culture can be religion. It could be spiritual practices. It could be region. I look at, I'm based in New York. And when we have funerals, New Yorkers are nice people, but we're not the nicest. And so when (laughs) the hearse goes by, some generally from where I am, people don't necessarily cut in front of the hearse. But it's kind of like, okay, we need you to move through because we're New Yorkers and we have places to go. <sighs> when my late aunt died several years ago, she died in Florida when my part of my family's originally from. And not only did everybody move to the left or to the right to get out of the procession line, they got out of the car and they put their hand or their or their hat over their heart and they literally waited until the last car went by. That's wow. part of the culture in down south. Mm. New York, we don't have that culture. I look at one of my coworkers from years ago. I can't remember what country in Africa she's from because Africa is not a monolith between cultures. But where she was from, someone has died and she said, I have to go back to the small village and where I am from. 
because we change everything. She goes, we change the house, we change the pillows, we change the parts of the town and what it looks like. She said, because it's supposed to signify that when somebody dies, everything changes. Wow. I look at between religions, I look in very, um, you know, one of my friends said that, and that, that Judaism is a monolith. When Michael had died, one of my closest friends, um, she was saying Judaism, how they have Shiva and they will sit together and they will do prayers and, you know, they don't touch the body in the way that they lay the person to rest is different. I look at, um, and some people who are very, um, come from very heavy Catholic backgrounds. Sometimes they don't believe that you should cremate the body. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. because again, culture and everything is changing. So these are, you know, traditional, but sometimes not that traditional. I look in the black African American where Christianity has a very heavy influence and it's very mm-hmm. much praise to God and that this person is with him and that they are living this newfound life better than they ever did on earth. So mm-hmm. it all depends on the person, again, where you're from, what religion you have or don't have, how your family is. I've been to very traditional families, funerals where everybody was black. I remember when Jason died, we felt it was already depressing as is. Um, so his brothers wore Power Rangers shirts because they were supposed to see the Power Ranger movie and Jason died. And they said, wow, you left us to go see it. And just us two and not as three. And so they were like, yeah, I know we're speaking on behalf of our brother and saying really good things. If you're wondering why we're wearing Power Ranger shirts, this is why. When Michael mm-hmm. died, his mom said, I don't want him in a traditional suit. She said he really liked this, this new jacket that you bought him two weeks ago, Ashley. And we all know his style. He kind of was dressy casual. So that's what we're going to wear. My And give one more example, when when Jason died... Um, he used to always wear a bow tie. This man loved bow ties. We would go to the park for, and we're going to be in dirt and everything because it's a picnic or it's a family gathering. He hasn't a bow tie. We're like, what, what, <laughs> where are you going with the bow tie? Like bow ties. So when he died, so many of us wore bow ties at the funeral. And if you didn't know, mm. have a bow tie. Some, there were some people passing out bow ties. So again, it's sometimes there's culture within family. Sometimes um, it extends beyond that. And what I'm really just gathering from this conversation and just reflecting on my own grief and just anybody around me that has shared similar stories with me, it really just is, I think, what feels most supportive for you in that moment. You know, and I think uh, there are a lot of things that we've done with my daughter. One thing um, my mother in law asked me was, can you keep giving her presents from me? you know, for her birthdays and her Christmas and things like that. And, um, you know, even when we did spread her ashes, she's always wanted to do high tea in this really special hotel. So that's where we went after we we scattered her ashes. So there's things like that, you know, but then there are days, as you know, that I'm like, I don't want to do any of that, you know, celebrating that in that way and bringing laughter into it. You know, we made a joke because um, my husband and his mom like had a very yep. uh, funny relationship. Like they would just kind of razz each other and he would always bug her and she would crack jokes to him. And so we were kind of crabbing, cracking up about the ashes. Like, wouldn't it be funny if a gust of wind came and just like it all blew in your face? Like right. that would totally be a sign from your mom of get, giving you one last dig. And we can have those moments of laughter. And then there's other days where, like I said, joking about that would not feel feel anywhere near appropriate or supportive uh, for me or for anyone. So I guess I just want to normalize that too, that there will be, yeah, those days of laughter and joy and other days where that's just not going to feel very great. 
Absolutely. My dad was in the military. And so he's when he dies, we're, he's going to have like the traditional military for the veterans. And he goes, I know that everything is paid for, but I kind of don't want to be in a casket. And I said, so do you want to be cremate, cremated? And he goes, well, not really, but I really don't want to be in a casket. And I said, okay, well, there's other options, but why don't you want to be a cask- in a casket? And he goes, I'm kind of claustrophobic. And I go, but you're going to be dead. <laughs> he's like, I know, but... I don't like that. Like, I don't like that. My remains is going to be <laughs> in a box. And right. um, my sister said, no, you better not put me in the ground because I'm terrified of bugs. And if you put me in the ground and a bug crawls on me, I'm coming to haunt all of you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and my, and, you know, then I have my niece and she goes, I just want to be a tree. And we're like, a tree? What? A tree? I say that. I want to be a tree or a diamond. I know you can turn the ashes into a diamond. I think that sounds pretty cool too. Absolutely. So... Uh, we kind of gain a sense of dark humor when it yeah. comes to loss. At the same time, I, you know, Jason's brother, he, we had, he had a little locket that had his ashes in it. And one day he, he looked really sad and we we're like, what's going on? He's like, I lost Jay. And, you know, some years had went by and his mom's like, Yo, yeah, no duh, we all lost him. And he goes, no, no, but I really lost him. She goes, yeah, we all lost him. He goes, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Then he holds up the the necklace and the bottom part where the ashes is, is gone. He's like, no, I really oh. lost him. I don't know where the ashes are. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's like, ashes, the ashes, that's the dust. Don't worry, we have more. And so mm-hmm. I'm being, you know, fun of it because as I say, we laugh to keep from crying sometimes. Mm, yeah. It's amazing how laughter and crying are like two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. and they both help release stuck emotions. Yeah, they're both so, so healing. They're both so healing. Something I want to circle back to was at the very beginning, you mentioned that when we experience a loss that we're often not just grieving the loss, but these parts of ourselves. And so I'm curious to know from your own experience and working with other clients who have gone through that, do they ever reclaim these parts of themselves? Um, do they transform? You know, What happens to these parts of us that we lose. I love that question. That's one of my favorite parts of loss to talk about. I actually just finished a workshop last month talking about identity after loss because it's such a Mm -hmm. huge component. And generally, many people aren't ready to hear or discuss this part until later on, which makes perfect sense. And I definitely wasn't. In the beginning, I wasn't trying to figure out who was Ashley. I was trying to figure out what mm-hmm. happened to Michael and Jason and all the other people that I had buried. And what is this life now? Let alone forget about the pieces of me that were lost. What I say is that some pieces are always worth salvaging. When we think about a hurricane, when we think about a storm, when we think about even the wildfires that happen, we go back and sometimes there's like a half a picture or there's some part of the house foundation that they can use. Maybe they say, wow, everything got messed up, but grandma's toaster is still here. There's always those small pieces that they can reclaim, even if they have to brush mm. them up or touch them up a bit. Even you think about when they say that a car is in salvage. Okay, the car was in an accident, but can we use the parts that are good for something? Sometimes when a person has died, they say, well, can they be an organ donor for the heart or the kidney? What parts of their body remains that we can still use? So even though you have gone through a loss and you're like, I lost all parts of me when they died, I died too. And I've said that a million times over. When we get to a certain portion of our process and the loss, we realize that there are pieces of our old selves that we can reclaim. 
And sometimes mm-hmm. they will manifest and express themselves differently. And sometimes they'll look exactly the same as they did previously. But again, mm-hmm. when the fire has just happened, we don't run back to it. We kind of let things die down a bit. And then at some point we go back to go through the house and see what we reclaim. So again, um, there always are parts of you that you can pick back up if you would like to. It all depends on you. Yeah, I actually have a question about, um, we actually just released an episode last week about comparative suffering, comparative pain. And I feel like that comes up so much with grief. Honestly, even me, there was a part of me that felt not guilty, but a little bit strange when my mother-in-law passed because I'm like, well, it's not my mom. And I almost felt like I was having to justify, but she was my mother-in-law for almost 20 years. And so she was a really important person in my life. She was like my second mom. And, um, but sometimes it's like, well, this isn't as, as bad as somebody else's lost or that person's parent went through like way more suffering than this person did. And so I would love for you to touch on how do we reconcile that in our own minds and give ourselves that permission to grieve, even if somebody else might be going through something that might be perceived as worse. Oh gosh. That is so huge, so huge in grief. So huge. So mm-hmm. huge in grief. And we could have a whole year workshop on comparison alone. Mm-hmm. I see it a lot too in this space. That's something that was very unprecedented when I started learning about grief and being more face forward with the loss. And oftentimes people say, well, you look very well put together and you know how to cope and your nervous system is regulated and you're not crying all the time and you have anniversaries and you seem to be relatively okay. We compare so much. You know, Jonah Cuff is an author. He said, don't compare your beginning to someone else's middle. Mm. And sometimes we do that. Often what I say in grief too, when we compare, we're not even doing apples to apples. That's like trying to build a house and I'm using modern technology and you are literally using no uh, modern technology, no electricity. You're doing old school style. (laughs) Stone tools. Right. (laughs) If you're using stone tools and I'm using bulldozers and machine screwdrivers and battery operated things and power chainsaws, like it's not the same. It's not the same. So sometimes you're comparing yourself to someone who had life insurance and they can afford to go to a therapist and you can't, or they can afford to go to a more experienced therapist or go to private pay and pay someone who understands their experience. Sometimes you're comparing yourself to a person who this is the first bad thing, so to speak, that happened to them. You have this trauma, plus you're processing all your childhood trauma at the same time. You're comparing yourself to someone who has a lot of family support to you who doesn't. Maybe you are a married widow Mm. and you're looking at, hey, look at this lady. She's getting up and she's going to work every day. But what you don't know is that she has three kids at home that she needs to feed and she's struggling just as much as you are. And also Mm. she's like, "I, I have these children to live for and you're trying to grasp someone to live for. So it's not the same. Mm. So what I say, the best thing that you can do, and it's really hard, is to practice self-compassion and kindness to yourself. Is to say that this is as hard as it feels. I'm doing the best I know how. Considering all that I'm going through, I've never been through this before. And I don't have to tackle it all at once. I can do it little by little. And my path of my Mm. grief is for me. My grief is unique to me and how I'm doing it is right. And 
when we can come to that acceptance, that's where the comparison fades. It takes a while to get there, but as long as we are comparing our grief to others, we're generally always going to find ourselves on the losing side. Yeah, it definitely seems like a lose-lose game. And I think for sure, we speak a lot about self-compassion and obviously self-love and kindness to be the cure-all, but I'm kind of actually curious about a stage that might come in between the primary stage we just chatted about and self-love, which might actually be anger at the self for comparing or anger at the self for still having to grieve, right? I think it may feel like, shouldn't I be over this already? Like, why is this still hard for me? I wonder if that's a stage you see most commonly. And obviously, I'm assuming that the self-compassion is still going to be the cure there. But is there a nuance to that or a different way we can respond to people who are angry at themselves for suffering? What I really love about the human brain is that we can think about our thinking. I think it's me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Metacognition, baby. We can think about our thinking. So oftentimes when I'm sitting face-to-face with a client and they go, I just, I see this person and this is where they are and I feel like I'm not where I should be. So I actually answer a question and say, where should you be? And they go, oh, mm-hmm. well, I'm not sure. Hmm, well, I never really thought about that. I'm like, well, how do you expect to get where you think you should be if you don't know where that place is? And they go, oh. Or they say, I'm, I'm not, I'm still grieving. I'm like, are they still dead? Yeah. So would you like to stop grieving? Well, no. Okay. Ah. So sometimes we pick up the language from other people that says that we should be moving on or we just come to our own conclusions or we have those intrusive thoughts. I nicknamed them intruder thoughts because we did not invite them. And mm-hmm. it's a think of inter- as you say, interrogate your thoughts. Where where should I be? Yeah, if mm. your mother-in-law had not died, if I wasn't a double widow if your parent or your grandparent had died. If they not if they didn't die the way that they died, how they died, and at that time of your life, yeah, you would be a different person. But that alternative wasn't available to you. So given the circumstances, mm. it seems like you are where you are and that's okay. Mm. It's always the non-acceptance of where we are. Um, Gina and I have been talking a lot about that in the past week, that we do so much mental work in our heads to get away from where we already are. And then the work is always realizing it's okay <laughs> to be where I am because I'm already here. Um, and I think that this conversation is just going to provide so much comfort and so much relief to the people who are suffering. And um, maybe just a final, a couple final questions, but um, for someone who has not gone through me losing someone, maybe that bad thing, quote unquote, hasn't happened to them. Um, how can we, how can we, how can we give them tools to support people who are going through it? I mean, as someone who has gone through so much grief, I'm curious to know what was the most helpful for you when you were moving through that? What did you desire from your social support circle? There's two parts of it. One, I'm going to answer in a personal way, but my personal way is often different from everybody's. One thing that many grievers want and many people who are just suffering in general is want to be seen and heard. Can you mm-hmm. love me the way I need to be loved, not the way that you want me to be loved? Can you hear me? Can you mm-hmm. see me? And truly just pause to understand. The second thing that I say is, is a cheat sheet. Use your five senses. You know how we're little kids and they go, 
your five senses. You you hear and you see and you taste and you smell. So use your five senses, your ears. Are you listening to the person who's grieving? Your eyes, are you seeing them? Not literally physically, even though that can be helpful, but are you truly seeing their heart? Mm-hmm. No, your mouth, are you using it to offer words of comfort and reassurance and validation? Your touch, are you giving them embraces or using your hands to take actionable steps? So going through the five senses is kind of a cheat sheet. What ways can I support that person in that way? And oftentimes your presence is enough. Mm, That's actually so meaningful because I think that a lot of people who are supporting people through grief feel like they need to do something and they're confused about what that thing is. They're like, what am I supposed to do? You're in a lot of pain. Like, should I ignore you? Should I do something? And um, I think just reminding everyone that it really is just presence and seeing and hearing and holding space for that pain that can be more than enough. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and especially in the early years, the we can't take away the pain because we can't bring the person back. So oftentimes mm-hmm. the support is pain management or suffering management. So it's looking like, can I come pick up the kids? If you need a day off, I can wash the kids for you. Would you like me to cook dinner or bring dinner or order food for you? Can I drop you off to the doctor? What Can I mow the lawn or take the trash out? It's practical, actionable things. What can you do to make their life a little bit easier? Yeah, because I definitely think there's an element of like, you don't want to say the wrong thing, you know, is what I'm saying even enough. And I find a lot of people, you know, um, just end up saying like, there's no words because there really, there isn't words. Right. But as you said, I know in my experience, what was the most helpful was just knowing that people were even thinking about us and, you know, um, had her in their minds. And, um, that was definitely more than enough. But I think as somebody who is grieving, um, in your experience, do you, do you see that it's really hard for them to even ask for help? It's hard to ask for help because they don't know what they need. Now, some people already have a hard time asking for help. And that's a different conversation. Like if you've always project yourself as Superman, nobody comes to the Mm. help of superheroes. So sometimes Mm, you have to be Clark Clint. So this way people can help you out. But if you don't know what you need, it's Mm. really hard to ask for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that if they're listening to this conversation, they can know that asking for help and support and, you know, going through whatever stage they're in is a normal process, like you said, and congratulations, you are human, nothing is wrong with you. I love that so much. And this conversation brought tears to my eyes several times. Um, and I'm already beginning to prepare because, <laughs> you know, all of us are going to lose someone. I think that interestingly, grief, although it can make us feel separate, it's actually one of the things that binds all of us. No one is actually going to be exempt from this experience if they live long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to round out our conversation, we'd love to ask you if there is a theme or a wound or trigger that you continue to spiral through. Because here on this podcast, we are not suggesting to our listeners that you will heal one day and never feel pain and suffering ever again, but that you will consistently spiral through things that raise your awareness and expand your consciousness. So we're curious to let our listeners know what that theme has been for you. Yeah. For me, in this season of life, it has been really understanding what it means to be a two-time widow. Mm. And it's the consistency of what I say, eulogizing the life that I thought I would have had 
before he died the first time, Jason, or before he died the first time, he only died once, but before I was widowed the first time. And then again, after Michael's death. So it was consistently sometimes eulogizing the life I thought I would have had and learning to be talking about acceptance a lot and learning to accept that. And that, again, there's no other place for me to be other than where I am. Mm. Oh, my God. Yes. Acceptance of the present moment. Um, And I love that you said eulogizing your previous life, because I think that's something you can do regardless of loss. Yes. Right. You know, sometimes we move places, um, we end relationships, no one dies, but you still end a really important bond. And you have to eulogize and honor and let go of that previous part of yourself so that you can be right where you are. Correct. Um, well, thank you so much, Ashley. This was like, we went so many different places and into the depths of my heart and Gina's heart. And I know that our listeners feel the same way. So please let them know where they can find and connect with you more. So I am on Learning About Grief Everywhere. If you're on Instagram, which seems very popular these days, you can find me at Learning About Grief. My home is learningaboutgrief.com. And even if you're looking for it to support people, I actually have a page just for support there. If you have law specific stuff, you can find it all at learningaboutgrief.com. And if you're on Twitter, well, formerly Twitter, now known as X, you can find me at learnaboutgrief because my name is a little bit too long there, but learningaboutgrief.com is where you can find me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ashley. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, again, having this conversation and inviting me on. It was such a gift. Bye, Ashley. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this honest conversation. We hope it brought you peace, clarity, and a little bit further along your spiritual journey. If you loved this episode, it would mean the world to us if you left us a five-star rating and a review so we can bring you more conscious conversations, spiritual topics, and guests. And we lovingly invite you to join our free Spiraling Higher community by clicking the link in the show notes to continue this healing dialogue and share with us how this episode impacted you. Come on in, introduce yourself, and meet your conscious besties in a safe space for healing conversations between us and other like-minded people on their healing journey. Here's to Spiraling Higher. Thank you.